What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these ND Hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. All right, I'm here with Julian Shapira, a buddy of mine. He's been on the show a few times. What have you talked about in the past, Julian? Basically, your business demand curve and like how to grow a SaaS business, which you've helped like hundreds of businesses do. Uh, what are you up to nowadays? Yeah, so demand curve is a community of like 40,000 marketers and operators. And then we use them as research and as intel for learning how companies are growing. And we package that intel into these playbooks. Uh, and then we teach them to you very tactically, like hands-on. How do you acquire customers through Facebook ads, Pinterest, you name it. So what I've been doing this week is I've been figuring out the patterns among the fastest growing companies that are in our community. Like who's growing way faster than they should? Like who's, who, who has the cheat codes and what are they? I thought that would be a fun exercise. So, And this is, this is important because probably growth is the number one challenge for any startup. Like so many people start companies and they've got a cool product, they've got a cool idea. Uh, they build it, they get it out there, nobody uses it. And they're like, oh shit, I didn't realize that like actually getting people in the door was like the hard part. And so uh, I want to hear these, these, these tactics. Yeah, sure. So I'm not saying these are necessarily new, uh, but they're just interesting. I know a lot of people don't really emphasize them. So one is something called self-liquidating funnels. A bunch of folks spoke to me about this. And the idea here is if you can't make the economics of paid acquisition work, like if you can't get your Facebook ads to work for your business because it's just too expensive, the idea is you can release a second product that is not the primary thing you sell. And the second product is something cheap. And it's like an impulse buy, like when you're at the checkout aisle of the supermarket. And if you push that, and if enough people buy this cheap, say $50, $20 thing, that it at least breaks even on your ad cost. Well, then the net gain is, you now have an email address and a potentially loyal new customer. So, and then you use emails like drip sequences over the next few months to convert that person to buy the primary product, right? So, so that's a self-liquidating funnel, meaning it like liquidates itself financially. And I thought that was so clever. And so just as a quick example, if you're like an education company, you can do it with an ebook. Or if you're like an SEO tool and you normally charge 200 bucks a month, well, what if you had a secondary product that's like a content planning tool and you just charge five bucks a month? I like that one. There's this idea of uh, side project marketing that people used to write about a lot. I don't see it as much anymore, but it's like, okay, it's really hard to get people to your main product. You build a secondary product and that gets people in the door. And so it's not the same as a self-liquidating funnel where the goal is to sort of recoup your costs, but it is kind of similar in that like you build a different thing in order to get traffic. And so I know like Lentai and my friend did this with her company Key Values. Her company is all about like getting, you know, software engineers to find jobs at companies that share their values. And then she built a side project called Culture Queries that helps you ask the right questions during a job interview, like ask questions to the company that's interviewing you so you can find out about their culture. Like that one gets a ton of search traffic and then she forwards that traffic to her main business. I think that was super smart. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the risk there is that you could get very distracted building all these, you know, totally. chasing all these secondary cheap products. Yeah. So there's much more to the strategy of prioritization underlying this, but for some folks, if you can spin up something quick and cheap that is very enticing, it could it can make the difference as to whether Facebook acquisition is even possible. 
All right. So next category of stuff, demand curve companies in our community are using to grow quick. So next is giving away money, which I know sounds like, yeah, no shit, Julian, but who would want who would How want could money? that possibly work? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But let me give you some examples of what I mean in practice. You have Main Street, which is a company that literally shows you how to get like 10,000 plus in tax credits uh, every year. So their ad is essentially, we're going to give you 10,000 bucks, not literally, but essentially. And that's an extremely compelling hook, which whenever you can present something to someone in the framing of, we're giving away tons of money and there's really no catch, the ads tend to perform extraordinarily well as, as they have for Main Street. Another example is a company called Service that used to exist. There used to be this like lesser known policy among airlines where they would give you some money back if their flights were delayed for certain reasons. And Service was an app that automated that customer support interaction so that literally like if you just upload your itinerary, you can start like printing cash back to your, your account or like credits toward future flights uh, if you were ever delayed. And so the ads run for that we're like, hey, did you know airlines will pay up to like 100 bucks in credit if your flight's delayed? And those ads crush it. And they were quickly spending like well over a million a month in, in ads there. So it's such a powerful Trojan horse because even if that's like not the best business model unto itself, it's such a quick way to grow because like people flock to it that it can then become the growth wedge, like the growth hook that powers your user base and builds loyalty. That, and then you then find secondary revenue streams that are way bigger to build on top of that. Yeah, I'm reading about Main Street right now. I wasn't aware of this business. It's funny. I have a bunch of friends who started businesses uh, in the past. And then when COVID hit, you know, the government started doing like all these sort of grants and loans. And it's like at crazy rates where people were getting tons and tons of money. And it's nuts how life-changing this money was for different businesses. But it's also nuts like how challenging it is to like know what all the options are. And so, yeah, businesses giving you free money by saying, hey, we'll take a small cut if you let our professionals go to work and save you all this money is huge. One of the cool business models is we'll take 5 or 10 or 20% of what we save yep. you, right? Everybody wins. Business makes money. You get money back. You never knew you were, you had, you know, coming to you. It's pretty compelling. So the third growth topic from the demand curve community we got here is product-led growth. So I'm sure a lot of people have heard of this term but I'm not sure if everyone has thought through how to implement it. So first of all, what does it mean? So product-led growth is basically when I sign up to use a product as it's intended to be used, inherently other people learn about my use of the product uh, or other people around me benefit hugely from signing up to experience it with me. And the reason that's so important is because it's the healthiest form of growth next to word of mouth and referrals which is a function of like the quality of your product, product experience. So, and, and the reason I want to dive into product-led growth for a moment is let's just compare it to all these other channels that are just sort of like worse over the long term. So ads, the CPMs, so the cost per impressions for running ads can spike up. It can be volatile. People constantly saturate their ad channels and they can't get the ads to work anymore, meaning people have seen their ads too many times with content. You're at the mercy of Google's algorithm updates, which can completely tank and cut your traffic in half. Happens all the time. But with product-led growth, it's like the healthiest thing that no one can take away from you that you can optimize over time and tends to be the most viral. So let me give you an example. Like when I sign up for Slack, inherent to me getting value out of Slack, I have to go invite a lot of other people. I bring my whole team on. I bring contractors on through Slack Connect because that makes the Slack experience even better. Let me give you another example. 
when I use PayPal and I send someone money, that's like the ultimate product-led growth because for them to even get my money, they have to sign up to get it, right? That's another great example of product-led growth. And there's so many more examples like Dropbox and so on, but that's a really healthy way to grow. So anyway, those are the three things that I guess I'll just wrap up by saying, like, if these are interesting to folks, this is all of what demandcurve.com is. We just help people with growth strategies. Obviously, this whole like concept of the creator economy has been really big recently. And you kind of got started maybe around this time last year, a little bit earlier, where you're like, Cortland, I'm going to grow the hell out of my Twitter account. And at the time, you were at like, I don't know, 10 or 20,000 followers. It's like, okay, cool, Julian, that's cute. Like, you could spend your time on Twitter. And now a year later, you're like 200,000 followers. You're literally 199,100 followers. So you'll be like at 200,000 followers by the end of this episode. You like crushed it. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone set their mind to something and then like figure out the formula and do it as well as you did. And now you're at this place where you have like a crazy following on Twitter and it's kind of like, okay, you want to branch out. So then we started the podcast, Brains. And now you're also starting a newsletter. And I'm just curious, like what you're thinking is like, why start a newsletter? If Twitter can ban the president of the United States, Donald Trump from the platform, no one's safe. And it just, it just struck me that I need a separate so-called channel and marketing speak to have a relationship with folks that I quote unquote own, meaning I have their email addresses. It's a one-way connection. There's no mediator other than email servers. So I think it's really important if you're going to spend all this time building an audience on say Twitter, that you have an escape hatch or like an off ramp. Um, so just theoretically from a time defensibility perspective, it makes sense, but that's not obviously why I would do it. I have hopefully pure, more interesting motivations than that. So for example, I think a lot about repurposing and forcing functions. So like if I'm already doing X, can I repurpose into Y? And then how, how useful could Y be to me? So if I'm already reading books, I'm already learning things, then I can condense them into newsletter issues. Awesome. Or as a forcing function, if I want to be reading more of that stuff, well, then I will publicly tell people I will do this thing and then I will have to stick to it. So forcing functions and repurposing go a really long way, I think, when you're essentially a content creator. But the design of this newsletter is the newsletter I always wanted, which is I'm basically like identifying beloved books in nonfiction and distilling the most interesting insights from them and sharing them with my opinions and my takes. And I only email you once a month. So I call it highlights, the highlights newsletter. It's julian.com slash newsletter. Because think of it like if you read through someone's Kindle highlights of the best books they've ever read, but they're like written really clearly and editorialized and like summarized, like that's what you get is like the best interesting stuff. So that was the whole idea. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> so we could talk more about the content. But what's interesting in particular is I have a conundrum, which is there's like well over 40,000 people who had subbed to julian.com in the past, not really for anything. It was like really nebulous, like I wasn't doing anything. And so now the conundrum is how do I swap people over, particularly given like some of them it's been quite a while and they're like, who is this asshole and just instantly hit the spam button. So I had to figure out the actual strategy for on-ramping all of these people who basically read at one point one of my handbooks on Julian.com or one of my blog posts, liked it enough and said, cool, I'll stay in touch. Wait, right. have you sent any issues yet? Have you, like... Yeah, so right now I've sent the first two just kind of as an automated drip sequence for folks who sign up and I've been checking the metrics. So I'm taking a very like iterative approach to this. So I'm not trying to go to the backlog of 40,000 folks just taking the people who sub every month right now. And I'm testing, does my instant email get, that gets sent upon subscription, what's the performance of that? 
And then I have this another issue that comes out a few days later automatically. And what's the performance of that? And if those are looking good, if I can harden that performance, then I'm in a position to go to the backlog and knowing that a lot of them won't churn, you know, in marketing speak, like fall off. So that's what I've done. And the, the unsub rate's extremely low. Uh, the open rate's extremely high. Like I've definitely cracked it there, I think. So now I got to go through the backlog. Do you ever worry about being like on kind of a treadmill? I mean, you're already on a treadmill, as am I. Like the fact that I have this podcast means that every week I'm kind of on the hook to produce one or two podcast episodes, whether I'm feeling in the mood to do it or not. And that's like partly why I'm not that active on Twitter. Like I'll tweet every now and then, but I don't want to like condition people to think that I'm going to tweet all the time because sometimes I just don't feel it. But you're like on a bunch of, you're running like 10 treadmills simultaneously and like a Peloton and like a, like you've got like everything. You've got like your Twitter, a podcast, you've got your handbooks on Julian.com. People are expecting those to come out. You've got your blog on Julian.com. You've got your newsletter. Do you ever feel like you're piling up like too many things and it's unsustainable or are you just like go mode all the time, never get tired of this stuff? It's a great question. The thing is, I don't care at all about expectations regarding frequency. Like I tweet twice a month. My newsletter is once a month. These are very low cadences. Um, my handbooks come out once every year and a half. Like I just really don't care. There's this weird myth out there that you have to hit some certain recurring high frequency for people to remember who you are. Absolutely not true. It's just a function of like, did you provide high enough signal like really high quality content? at least enough time to say like one to three times for you to build this impression that any time you release something in the future, it's worth people's time to revisit you. If you can accomplish that perception, the frequencies are relevant. And there's so many great examples. Tim Urban, who we've been talking about on waypointy.com, that guy publishes so infrequently. It's like the world's most popular blog. You know people like Tim Urban because if you read his comments on his blog, it's a bunch of people who are angry that he's not publishing one. <laughs> that's right. And that's how you know your fans love you when they're like actually mad at you for not publishing. And it's kind of like, it's kind of analogous to the podcast where you can do this experimentation thing. Like you've got this experimenting phase with your newsletter where you're like, okay, I'm going to do book highlights. But like maybe book highlights won't work. Like maybe people will love the first three and then after that they'll be like, that's enough book highlights, right? Then you can just change. In the beginning of any new thing, you might as well cast a wide net, experiment with a bunch of different formats, measure and see how people like respond and react to them and then not narrow yourself into a corner until like you've actually figured out what works. Basically, explore and exploit is the short way of saying this. And with your newsletter, it's like, I'm, I'm curious, like, do you have alternative options if this book highlights thing doesn't work out? I like the book highlights idea. Like, I want to get highlights of books. I read a ton of books, but quite frankly, I could read more if I was getting the highlights. Uh, but what happens if that doesn't work? Like, do you quit the newsletter or do you try a different format? Well, I guess, I guess we have to define work. Like if, if, I, if I feel like enough people are subscribing and retaining and if they're not churning, then it works. Uh, if that isn't the case, if we do see high churn, would I change the approach? Probably. Because the ROI, is it just tied to am I learning? Is it a forcing function? It's like also is this actually like the opportunity cost on building an audience through some other means or keeping them close is real. So yeah, I'd probably switch topics if it were if the unsubscribe rates were super high, because I don't think it would be because the implementation's bad, because I've already I've done enough testing and chatting with folks. I think the implementation of the idea is good. So really what we're trying to find out is, is the idea one that doesn't burn people out? That's the question, I think. Uh, and if so, yeah, I'd probably switch it up. But like when I was canvassing newsletters out there, there's a few different categories. Maybe we break into it. Maybe it's helpful for listeners. So you have like, the long form editorial stuff, like here's my take on why Slack's going to be a huge business, right? 
Then we have a like news roundup. This is like six different stories from the news with my quick paragraph take, right? Then we have things that are like personal journeys and personal discoveries. Like this month, I'm going to tell you about how I learned about X, what I've been up to with my girlfriend and what new supplements I'm trying and all that stuff, right? Like we have a few friends who have these little newsletters that are just like that. And there's a few others. And so in that landscape, this type of structure has the best legs. Mine is essentially half editorial, half resource finding. So it's like, I'm, oh, that was, the, that was the other thing that I forgot to share. Another format is like the Tim Ferriss Five Bullet Friday thing, where it's like five cool links around the web. I'm halfway between that and an actual editorial. And I think that is a good mix. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of resource one is interesting because it's like, Tim Ferriss has Five Bullet Friday. I feel like he had to be the one who started this. James Clear has three, three, two, one Thursday. He's like, okay, well, here's like three quotes and then two ideas and then one question for you. And it's just like super formulaic. It's the same every single time. And then you've got like David Perel has like basically the same thing. He has like two newsletters that are like kind of like the same format. And like that format I think is really cool because it's the easiest sort of read and skim. Like quite frankly, when I'm in my inbox, like I'm, I don't really want to sit down and read like a really dense essay when I'm like trying to blow through my emails. I'm just trying to get the unread count to zero. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, and so it's like really skimmable and it's really easy, I think, to write because you don't have to like rack your brain every day with a completely new story. Like if you're Ben Thompson from Stratechery and you're doing editorial and like every single week or every other day, you've got to figure out like a new story to cover in some unique way and like break news that no one else has had or heard, like that's super hard to do and super effortful. Like Matt Levine does this with um, his column, but he basically does like biz business writing and it's mostly like finance and he's super good at it. It's like his newsletter is awesome. And uh, I think he writes for Bloomberg. He's got a huge following and I emailed him once. I was like, oh, how do you come up with your ideas, et cetera, et cetera. I just want to kind of like shoot the shit with him. And his answer is, I work very, 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 very hard. And it's like, well, <laughs> that doesn't seem like a very fun thing. To, he didn't seem like he was having a lot of fun doing it. You know, he seemed a little bit stressed out. And so I like your sort of resource sharing format the most. Yeah, it's, you can't do what I'm doing or what Benedict's doing if it's like an afterthought. It has to be integral to the other work you're already doing because it's just too time consuming. And if you don't already have an audience to justify it, like the ROI, it's like very dicey use of time. And that's why, to your point, these link roundup things, you can delegate that to someone on your team. Like it, that, that's probably the strongest. I know they have um, great subscription rates. I know they're not that hard to do. Uh, we know their open rates are pretty good too because I've asked some of these newsletter folks. With Indie Hackers, our newsletters, it's the news roundup format. And so every issue will be kind of like four or five stories. And the value prop from every issue should be that like you walk away knowing more about like what you need to know about to be an Indie Hacker, to be a successful Indie Hacker. And then the kind of like the North Star metric is churn. People underestimate churn so much. It doesn't matter if you're like bringing people into your newsletter or your podcast or your website if more people are leaving than joining well, what causes somebody to unsubscribe from a newsletter? Often you could have a really good newsletter that people think is like awesome. It's like, oh, I really love this newsletter, but they don't read it. And so eventually after not reading it like 10 or 15 times, they just click unsubscribe because it's just cluttering up their inbox. And like, this would be good if I read it, but I'm not reading it, so it sucks. Uh, and so for us, we're like, okay, well, our newsletter is so long that people often won't read it. And so what we did is we tried to like condense the value as like much as we possibly could and put it right at the top. And so we won't just have four stories that you need to take like 30 minutes to read through. We'll have four bullet points at the top, each one of which just by reading it will like tell you something you need to know or something that's good to know that you wouldn't have known otherwise unless you were following the news elsewhere. And like that in and of itself is enough for you to not unsubscribe, even if you never read the rest of it.
Yeah, a little something for everyone is actually a pretty decent approach for newsletters in particular, I think. Um, like, it's, it's too unfocused for a blog post, but there's some channels where it just kind of makes sense. I think newsletters are one. I think Twitter is the same thing. A little something for everyone, you know. <laughs> like you get a, get a little meme action in there, a little personal narrative. Yeah. How are you feeling about Twitter nowadays? I know they, uh, they've they been, like, experimenting a whole bunch. It's funny. I bought a bunch of Twitter stock, like, last fall because I was like, I think Twitter's going to crush it. And, like, out of all the, the, the holdings I have, Twitter's, like, doing, done by far the best. They've been absolutely crushing it with their new features. They've got, like, a ton of people on the platform. And uh, I'm bringing this up because you mentioned memes. They had Twitter sort of stories. I forget what they called them. Fleets. They had fleets. And you're like so good at posting new memes in the fleets. And now they've announced that they're getting rid of fleets. But there's all sorts of other cool stuff. They got Twitter spaces. They're going to monetize Twitter. I think they're basically trying to make Twitter so that you don't do what you're trying to do right now and move off of Twitter and take your audience to like an email newsletter. So how do you feel about like the future of Twitter? I think Twitter is the most interesting social network for information. Nothing's even, well, actually, I guess YouTube, but YouTube's not really a social network. I don't think I'd call it that. It's not. It's like democratized media or something. But if we're looking at like these pure social networks, then maybe you could say YouTube is one. Twitter is the most interesting. Like you can you can learn enough to build a career. You can learn enough to make a ton of money. You can learn enough or you can like position yourself well enough to meet amazing people. These things are really only possible right now uh, on Twitter that I can think of. And also like on Twitter, like you're assessed not by your social graph. So like if I'm on Facebook, like my social graph determines who I meet, who's recommended to me. And like, if I'm in the cool, cool kids club, maybe if I'm in high school sort of thing, who's talking with me, Instagram, it's like, how good are the images you post <laughs> on LinkedIn is how good is this fucking corporate spam you post, whatever it is on Twitter, you're judged by the quality of your thoughts. Like that's what you populate into the fire hose of people who follow you. So if you're just a no one with really interesting, like contrarian thoughts or elegant thoughts, you can go so far. You'll see these people who come from complete obscurity and skyrocket to a ton of followers just purely based on their thoughts. I think that's brilliant. I think it's an equalizer. And I think yeah. it's the most educational and satisfying social network. So I, I really hope it sticks around. All of these features that they're like releasing and that are bombing are like a distraction to me. I just really want the health of the network to exist where people feel free to share interesting ideas. Yep. I think you just nailed it. Yeah, YouTube's, YouTube's huge. YouTube's like a learning machine. You can go to YouTube and learn anything. Twitter is the best place to discuss ideas, like you are saying. It's the best place to connect with people. Instagram, I use just like to talk to friends and sometimes to learn. Like I'm doing a lot of like interior design stuff with my new apartment. And like Instagram has a lot of great accounts for like visual, you know, inspiration. But Twitter is like, it's to me, it seems like this gold mine where like people like you are constantly tweeting these threads full of like really great information or these really great insights. And like, I kind of have to like be online at the right time to catch it. Like their search sucks. Like, like if I could just go on Twitter and search like, I don't know, like B2B say like SaaS sales, like it should pull up like the best threads of all time of which there will be many that talk about this topic and like show me the people who are the experts on this and let me ask them questions and talk to them. Like Twitter is like poised to be able to do stuff like that, but they really don't. And so I think like that's not necessarily a bad thing if you're like investing in Twitter's future. <laughs> I think that means I have a lot of room to grow. Um, and that's you. Like it might be me financially as like a public you know, stock market investor. It's you personally as somebody who's actually investing a lot of time into Twitter itself. Um, and other people who are on Twitter as well. But like even without that, let's say they never build that stuff. Your Twitter account, 200,000 followers, is a huge distribution channel. Pretty much anything you work on for the rest of your life, if you tweet about it, you're going to like provide like that initial shock of users in the front door to get them to check it out. You can tweet about your newsletter, you'll get a bunch of subscribers. 
I don't know if there's any other place that is easier to sort of grow just by sharing ideas and then use that to sort of parlay your traffic and your following into like some other arena. All right, let's talk about what I've been bugging you to talk about for weeks now on the podcast, our other podcast, because we started a new show. It's called Brains. I don't think I've talked about it on Indie Hackers, but now that you're here, I feel like we've got to talk about it just because it's such a cool show. I guess you like pitched me this idea of doing a podcast when like October last year. Like I think my mindset at the time was like, the last thing on earth I want to do is another podcast. <laughs> and then we started talking about it and working on it and like it became, I mean, I don't know if I've told you this, but like I became more excited about it the more we workshopped it and the more we sort of tinker on stuff and workshop it and like analyze it and like try to like figure out the best way to make it work, like the more fun it becomes. Like that's the fun of it. That's funny. My memory is you, you suggested it. <laughs> that's probably <laughs> changing history. Yeah. Well, the exciting part for me is seeing how relentless you are by figuring out the right way to structure every episode. Like we bypassed a couple of years of really awful content because you had so many learnings from MIDI hackers. And that to me is like, even if, even if the show goes nowhere, I'm learning so much about how to construct an interesting conversation, which is just, it goes beyond the podcast. So that's very interesting to me. And yeah, I, almost every part of it started as a chore, like literally every part, scheduling guests, figuring out who to schedule, the recording, the editing. But now there's a feedback loop. So because enough of the episodes I think are actually good, I'm like, oh, this will come out good. And the dopamine hits like a, like a few feet away. I'm going to have fun chasing through this. And then the flip side is I've realized it's become a giant excuse to meet awesome people. So like there's kind of two ways to be a host on a podcast. One is kind of like that fake and like e-television announcer person who's like hey so glad to have you here let's dive into your history you once wrote about <laughs> x and i want to learn a lot about that and then the other way is like okay let's be a person let's have a real conversation right and if you do the latter then there's a good chance the guests you have on who in our case are awesome people i've always wanted to meet actually become your friends afterward so that to me is like an amazing honestly unexpected benefit. Like I'm actually talking with these people now. Yeah. Tyler Cowan's podcast, Conversations with Tyler, he's like, he's very authentic. He'll basically read like 10 books before an episode because uh, he's just like an avid reader. He only invites on guests that he really cares about. And then he just has a conversation with them that he genuinely wants to have. Like sometimes during his episode, his guests will be like, oh, should we explain this concept for listeners? And we'll be like, no, it's not for them. It's for us. And then they'll just, they'll just like talk for 10 minutes about something that you have no idea what they're discussing. But it's kind of fun like as a listener because you get to hear what real people, I guess in this case like academics and economists, are actually talking about. And you get to authentically be a fly on the wall and not get the sort of like fake, you know, tailored to the audience experience. See, that, that's exactly the thing is I think when a lot of people make content, they think they have to optimize for the layperson. But lay people actually enjoy the puzzle of figuring out what the heck is going on. And they, they catch up and then it becomes a fun chase like in a mystery film. And if you target the lay people exclusively, then you, you alienate the intermediates in advance. But if you actually aim for intermediate to advance, everyone enjoys the content. Uh, like when Eric Weinstein goes on Joe Rogan and he has these like hour long diatribes about really hard math concepts. So like you don't understand any of it, but <laughs> you know, like literally, literally none of it. But the joy is watching someone who's working in a different plane of like thought just geek out and then try to relate it to someone else who they really 
respect. And that, that that's a really fun thing. So I'm with you. It's like, don't make content for lay people when you're doing a podcast. Yeah. I mean, and unless the other like side of that show. is exactly if it's education, you need to dumb it down to basically hold people's hands and make sure they understand what's going on. Cause the goal is to like teach them something useful, but most podcasts are for entertainment. Like people are listening while they do chores. Like they kind of want like a few dopamine hits of insights and learnings, but like they're mostly listening to pass the time. And so they feel good. And if you're going to do an entertainment show, then it's like, you really do need to accept the fact that people like to piece together puzzles. People don't always want to know exactly what you're talking about. And I think the other side of that is, you know, I've talked to probably a couple dozen people who started podcasts since I started Indie Hackers three or four years ago. And almost every one of them has like subsequently quit because podcasting is hard. Putting out anything on a weekly cadence is hard. A newsletter, tweeting all the time, building your website is hard if you're going to do it on a consistent basis. So if you're not doing something that you actually enjoy, you're probably going to quit. And if you're not having authentic conversations, if you're sort of putting on like a fake performance every single time, then you're not really going to enjoy your show. And what's worse is you're going to build up an audience of people who get used to the type of show that you're doing. And then you're going to feel even more locked into doing it that way once you have like a thousand or 10,000 listeners and it's going to be hard to like go back. So the best thing you can do is start off kind of the way that we did, which is like, let's invite the guests that we want to talk to and discuss the topics that we want to talk about and prep in the way that we want to prep and like converse the way that we want to. And hopefully the people that we like who like us and our style will listen to the show and people who don't won't listen. And like, that doesn't, that doesn't matter. They can go listen to some other show. Yeah. I fine. think that's the nature of being a craftsperson. Like you can't be a craftsperson unless the process is itself the reward. And so if you can figure out how to delegate or like batch or automate the stuff you don't like and then really emphasize the stuff you do love and figure out what those are, then it gets it can be sustainable. Uh, we have this thing in demandcurve.com, you know, which maybe we'll talk about, which is this idea of repurposing. So anytime we make content, we ask ourselves, what else can this be repackaged for so that if this particular outlet is a failure, then at least we get some mileage out of it. So that's what I meant by like me becoming close with these awesome guests we have. Literally, if no one listened to this show, I at least have that. And I actually think that alone is positive ROI. Because if you think about a podcast, it's a really, really good, mutually self-interested excuse uh, to meet with people who you kind of didn't have a great excuse to before. Like if you wait for authors to come on the, the uh, publication circuit for their latest book, like they're self-interested in going on a pod. And if yours looks legit and you can kind of project that there's enough sort of signal behind it or listenership, then there's a decent chance you can get them on. And that's kind of the wedge for meeting them. So like, that's such a great repurposing of the experience. And the other is, and this I think is the most important one, I think particularly for you, I think, is each episode is a forcing function for learning something. It's like, okay, if we're going to do an episode today on personal finance. All right. I've always wanted to learn that. Now's the time to do it. And again, if no one listens to it, at least I'll be able to bounce my ideas off someone who's an, like an awesome, educated a guest who can correct me where I'm wrong. I love this idea. It's, it's this idea of kind of like stacking where whatever you're doing, instead of just trying to hit like one benefit or one value proposition, you stack multiple benefits. So it's like, okay, let's do a podcast. Potentially you can make money from a podcast. You can learn interesting things from your guests. You can make friends with your guests. You can basically learn interesting things just by preparing for episodes. So like you said, if we do personal finance, we can read a bunch about personal finance and it's a forcing function to do that. Um, there's like a whole bunch of different benefits that you can kind of stack. And so for me, like one of the things that convinced me to do this show, in addition to the fun of just working on it with you, was like all of these different stacked reasons, like all these different benefits that create 
what um, Charlie Munger calls like the Lollapalooza effect. When you have a bunch of different things pushing in one direction instead of just one benefit, you get like these outsized gains, these outsized effects. And so uh, I, I wonder what like the, the biggest benefits are for you. You mentioned uh, obviously like becoming friends with the guests. Like we've had some pretty high profile people on the show. And like ideally we're going to get cooler and cooler people on the show. We had Tim Urban from Wait But Why on. We've had James Clear and Mark Manson, two like the highest, the best-selling nonfiction authors. We've had Liv Barry, who's like a super cool science educator, and she's like best friends with like Grimes. Who else do you want to have on the show? And like what else is like interesting to you about doing the podcast? Because it takes up a ton of time. Yeah, well, that's the other thing is I think we've compressed the time down enough because we really half-ass prep, which is great. It takes like 45 minutes. And then the only time-consuming thing is really thinking about what episodes to do next, which takes way more time than anyone listening is going to guess. And then the other one, it, which maybe we can talk about, the other one is editing the episodes. But at least editing is kind of fun because you're like curating conversation. It's, I don't know, it's kind you of like really editing. I hate it. <laughs> I edited the Indie Hackers podcast for like the first year and a half. And now it's like the last thing on earth that I want to do is edit, spend another minute of my life editing a podcast. Like my preference would be like record it and just go. Well, when I'm editing, these are like conversations that are actually like really fun. I don't know how much fun you find your average indie hackers pod, but like if, if they don't mean much to you individually, I can't imagine editing is anything but soul sucking. But for me, I'm like going back and reliving this great conversation about aliens and how the world's going to end with everyday astronaut Liv Marie. And like I, I have no problem revisiting that. Yeah, it's not so much the revisiting for me. It's like the revisiting it like time after time after time again. To edit like a one-hour podcast episode could easily take five or six hours. And what you end up with at the end of it is like a much better product, the same way as if you were to edit an essay or an article or a tweet. Like it definitely pays dividends. But I'm always kind of jealous of these shows where they just like get on and riff and they don't edit. And sort of trade-off there is like show's not quite as good, but it's a little bit more fun because you're not spending time editing and then you get out more episodes because each episode sort of, uh, as you were saying, like you know, the two big time sinks are like scheduling and picking topics and editing. And so if you can get editing down to like zero, uh, it's great. But that's not what we're doing for our show. And you're doing all the editing. <laughs> so it kind of works out because it's like, okay, well, I've got a co-host now, which I don't have for indie hackers who can do the things that I don't like to do. If we were to switch to a format that didn't require editing at all, riffing kind of like this, that could work and I think I think it very well could work but I think for, for us to progress to that stage where the episodes are nonetheless very good when doing that I think we'll need to have like super de-risked guests who are also like big jaws unto right. themselves yeah does that make sense like it can't just be topic based it has to be like I want to hear what Brad Pitt as a bad example wants says about anything on this topic because then you kind of have them hooked enough who you don't have to edit anything like Quentin Tarantino, I th yeah, someone just did like this huge three and a half hour podcast, some film director, something like that. And I remember thinking like, if you like what he has to say, there's no point editing this. It's a good thing about getting really good guests is like, on one hand, it's sort of like emotionally draining because as a host, you're like, well, this isn't like me writing an article where I can just edit and edit and edit. Like I've got one shot to record with a super high profile person who took forever to schedule with and it needs to go well. And so it's kind of nerve wracking. But on the flip side, when you get like a really famous or talented guest, Almost every time the episode comes out amazing because these people are like high profile for a reason. You know, like I think our, our dream sort of pairing is like, let's get Vladimir Putin with uh, Jerry Seinfeld. You know, like kind of as a joke, but kind of like seriously, like a year from now, we want to have super high profile guests who are just going to be fascinating to talk to. And if we ever do that, like our, our Mark Manson, um, James Clear episode, like we got two of the best authors in the same room, like instantaneously, like, it's a great conversation. And we don't have to essentially worry that much about 
whether the conversation is going to go well or not, because these are people who like people listen to for a reason because they have a lot to say. They've trained themselves to be interesting. Like their, their, their low level of interestingness is pretty high and they know how to turn it on during interview. So that's, that, that's, you know, in, in essence, the cheat code. Yeah. I mean, if I think about like some of our best episodes or my favorite episodes, I like the one I keep referencing James Clear and Mark Manson. I mean, these are two guys who sold collectively close to 20 million copies of their nonfiction books, um, made tens of millions of dollars in the process. How many people on earth can really speak to that at the level that they can? Like almost nobody. How often do you get to hear like two people like that in a room talking to each other about like strategies for selling and writing books? Like pretty much never. And then Jason Silva and Tim Urban on storytelling. Same deal. Like Tim Urban, Wait But Why, arguably the most popular blog on the internet. He gave the most popular TED Talk on YouTube. He's got like 40 million views master storyteller and then jason silva like his instagram account and his youtube account are huge and he's also like this crazy passionate storyteller but they have two very different styles and so it's like okay what happens when you get the two of them in a room and talk to them about storytelling and that episode was amazing like i was just like taking notes at the same time i was trying to contribute because it was so fascinating to hear these two guys go at it my guess is you like the james clear mark manson episode on writing books because it hits the ideal that you always wanted to hit from like day one which is two world-class experts brainstorming analytically uh, with also a bit of rapport and like you know, good humored nature thrown in. My favorite experience was probably storytelling with, with uh, Tim Urban and, and Jason Silva yeah. slash and tied with the doomsday episode with everyday astronaut and livery because it's just fun, you know, and the fun's infectious. And that's kind of the brilliance of what we figured out only in hindsight and anyone listening who, has checked out like brainspodcast.com. There have been episodes that y'all will never see. You know, we dropped a couple at the beginning because it wasn't actually clear to us what the heck the archetype for a good episode is. And what we realized is that there are multiple archetypes. You can have the fun episode. You can have the analytical one with the world-class experts. And the fun ones, I think, are the ones people remember. Uh, like I've had a bunch of people pay me lately about the Doomsday episode, like literally in all caps. Like, people keep saying that was in all caps. Fun, man. And I'm like, awesome. That's what I wanted to do. That was by far the most fun one to record. And it's like, we have these different exactly. archetypes almost. Because that one was just like, let's think of interesting scenarios. Let's think of like how the world's going to end. Let's think of like the existential risk of AI. Let's think about space travel. Let's think about UFOs. And then just like riff with like two professional science educators about like all these different things. And like we prepped for that one. But like we probably didn't even have to prep <laughs> because most of it is just like us like analyzing, dissecting like our favorite theories and and thoughts. And like if I could have a conversation like that every single day, I would. It was funny is I don't think you cared for the topics in that episode, right? It's funny. I'm realizing everything I'm saying is like digging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not well, I liked AI. Thoughts. Like AI is a really cool topic for me. UFOs, I'm not that genuinely interested in. But then hearing like the three of you riff on UFOs gave me like all these like kind of ideas and response. Like when we talked to you, for example, Jason Silva, and I think you do this too. We were kind of like, how do you come up with ideas for things to write? And he's like, oh, I don't just like sit around in a room and come up with ideas. Like I read stuff and I listen to people and then eventually they, says, they say something that makes me want to react and that's what I tweet and that's what I make videos about. And like that's kind of how I felt uh, in that episode. It's like, oh, I don't really know what to say about UFOs, but then it's like, you guys have these theories. And it's like, okay, well now <laughs> I want to respond. And like that got me like super jazzed. So like if you were breaking down earlier, like what parts of the podcast take the most time? And in my dream world, prep would take the most time, but it wouldn't be like this sort of like honorous, oh, we've got a podcast, like let me sit down and like prep questions and rack my brain, it's not that fun. It'd be much more like, let's pick a topic that I care about, like dating and relationships or whether or not to have kids or you know, social media and screen time or optimism for the future and technology. 
And then like, I just want to like go consume like the best TED talks, like the best books, the best essays about that. The same way I would just like read in my free time because these are topics I'm genuinely interested in. And then like come to the episode without any questions written down, but just this background of like knowledge that I had, which sort of like helps me become, I think, a better, smarter person as a side effect of running the show and also makes each episode like super fun. I think what's different about this is it's just much more personal. It's more affinity building. And I know we've talked about this before, like scattered across our pod and Twitter, but you like when you're just writing stuff, and that's all how people like that's the entirety of how people know you, right? It's, it's pretty cold. But if they can now hear you ramble like I am with you for an hour, it's, it can elevates the sort of degree of how personal the relationship is. So like the more multimedia you layer on, as we've chatted about in the past, yep. uh, the more intimate it gets. Yeah. And like even more intimate than this is video. Even more intimate than that is us sitting around a campfire. And so the audio is a really nice layer if you're trying to like. I don't know, build an audience of folks who are kind of there for the long haul. Uh, a podcast can be a strategic way to do it if you're otherwise like not on YouTube vlogging or something. Yeah, I think so too. For any hackers, I've been doing kind of going up that same sort of like affinity ladder, you know, like it started off as just articles and stuff online, like interviews online. And then it turned into like a community where people could respond and interact. And then it turned into a podcast where people could actually hear each other's voices and hear my voice. And then we started doing like in-person meetups, which kind of got killed because of COVID, but I just brought it back. Um, in Seattle at least, but they're going to be all over the world hopefully in another year or two when this virus is done. But it's like, it's so much more fulfilling when you actually see people in person, you know, and it's so much more fulfilling when people are hearing your voice over a podcast versus just tweeting. And I think that's part of like what makes it fun for me. You know, when I meet somebody who's like actually listened to the podcast, they have like way more to talk about than if I meet somebody who's just like read a tweet or something because like they kind of feel like, I don't it's hard to understate like how, how close someone could feel to you if they've had you in their ear for hours and hours every day for months the question to be raised besides the fact that like this is obviously like fun to do in the meantime is like what is our ultimate goal with this like are we going to make money from the podcast is the goal for this to help our other projects like i know a lot of people who say oh i've got like an app or a project or a blog or something and it's got no traffic like i know i'll start a podcast <laughs> now they have two problems <laughs> they have two two projects right. that have no traffic what's the point of like our podcast and if i ask myself like I don't really know besides the fact that it's really fun to do and I really like the episodes that we're putting out. Like, I don't think we have any plans to make money. Like, I don't think I want any advertisers on the podcast. Like, let's say the show didn't hit huge numbers. Like, let's say we're, we're never getting 100,000 downloads an episode. Would I, under any circumstances, still be happy about the show? I think absolutely yes. You know, let's say we never, add ad, we never put ads. So we never monetize. We never, like, you know, bring on startup founders and start investing in their companies, which is, like, one way that people monetize their podcasts. Would I still be happy about the show? Yes. Why? Only if what you're saying were to happen, which is that we actually authentically became really good friends with the guests. And for me, if I could weave it into like an actual like habit that's part of my lifestyle that doesn't feel like work, it just feels like a fun, uh, not even excuse to talk to cool people, but like uh, sort of a hack to talk to cool people where I feel like privileged and like honored right. to get to talk to people who I normally never would have the chance to sit down with. And so I think for that to happen, it's less about how many downloads we get or how much money we're making or other things like that. And it's 100% about like, what caliber of guests can we eventually get on the show and like what topics are we discussing with them? And that's pretty much it. There's also the chase, which is like, how can we keep escalating the difficulty of guests we're getting on? That's also fun. And it's, that's actually what I mean more so when I say forcing function is I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, like how do we get Jerry Seinfeld? And I like having to build like a back catalog of like sufficiently good podcast episode material that Jerry would be like, oh, hell yeah, I'm coming on this. You know, it's, it's just it's just fun. And it, it, all of this is being repurposed in so many ways. 
Uh, like sometimes I'll just be into something for a month, writing a blog post on it, and that'll become an episode for the show. Yeah, I know I said I was going to like be over the head with this podcast stuff the entire time, but I got to say the other thing I love about our show, as simple as it is, is the title, Brains, which took forever for us to come up with. Like I think your first title idea was an honest conversation, which is smart because it starts with an A, <laughs> and like when people subscribe to podcasts and their player kind of ranks them alphabetically most of the time, and then we had like I was like, well I don't know, I tested that with a few friends. And some of them said it was good. Some of them said it sounded stale. And then we had like a whole list of things I was testing out with tons of people. And none of them sounded quite right. Like every one of them sounded like, I don't know, compromise or settling. And then like out of nowhere one day you're like, let's just call it Brains. And I thought that was genius. It's like the most evocative name. There is no podcast called Brains. Like we're the only one. And it kind of means whatever you want it to mean. Like are we referring to our guests? Are we referring to the topics? Like who knows? But like for some reason just the name Brains makes me more excited to work on it. I think that was a good contribution, but yours was actually more meaningful. I think the striking art, the monkey who's like contemplating, like paired with the name brains is very, everything's kind of charged and just feels like, what the heck is that? I've talked about this on the show before. There's this, this book to naming called Igor's Guide to Naming. And they talk about like different categories of names and the best category of names are like evocative, like names like Virgin, Virgin Airlines, like an evocative name. And to get an evocative name or an image you don't want to be too literal. Like if your show is called brains or ideas or something, like you don't want a picture of a brain or a picture of a light bulb. Um, you want something that's like one or two steps removed. So you're like, okay, brains makes me think of like thinking, which makes you think of evolution. So let's put a picture of a monkey on there. And then like people see the monkey and they see the word brains. And it's kind of like what you were saying earlier. Like people don't want things necessarily explained to them like they're lay people. They kind of want to like make the connection on their own in their heads. And so like something about it just kind of feels right when you're a couple steps removed from what you're actually trying to describe. We should do this more often. I want to have more, kind of in the same way that I want like brains to be really fun for me to run. I want Andy Hackers to be like increasingly fun for me to run as a podcast. And so part of that is like doing the bread and butter interviews where I bring on, you know, entrepreneurs and I go through their story and we extract lessons. But part of that is I want to talk to like my friends, people like you, people like Justin Mayers, people who like uh, I know really well who are doing interesting things that are sort of tangential to being Andy Hackers and put it out there and see if people like it. So hopefully you'll come on more, Julian, and we'll talk about what you're doing in your uh, your newsletter and Twitter and Demand Curve and uh, all sorts of other projects. I don't know if I know anyone else who's working on as many promising projects simultaneously as you are right now. Uh, why don't you tell people, Julian, where they can go to find out more about what's going on at Demand Curve and your newsletter and our podcast and anything else you want to you wanna plug? Sure. I'll just say Julian.com has all the links to everything and the podcast, The Mean Cortland. And um, I'm curious to find out. Brainspodcast.com. Yeah, brains. I'm curious, like people who love indie hackers, what they think of brains. Yeah, I wish there was an easier way to get feedback from podcast listeners, but people can listen, leave a review on iTunes or uh, Apple Podcasts. Let us know. Julian, thanks a ton for coming on.